Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to another edition of The Learning Curve. I am Kara Kandel here with the fabulous Gerard Robinson. And Gerard, on this National Teacher Appreciation Day during this National Teacher Appreciation Week, I want you to know that I appreciate you not only because you were a K-12 teacher, but also because you are a teacher. And I feel like I learn something new every time we do this podcast, even when we disagree. <laughs> oh, right back at you. Who was, do you have a recollection? Can you share something about that one teacher who really sort of, you'll never forget, you'll always be able to name and say something about? Yes, it's Sister Therese, who is in her 80s. Uh, she's still alive. She was my fourth grade teacher, and she did some work with me when I was in the eighth grade at a Catholic school in Los Angeles. Um, she had such a tremendous impact upon me that for the past several years, I have funded a scholarship in her name at an all-girls Catholic school in Inglewood, California, named St. Mary's, because the her Catholic order is the supporter of the institution. She was an arts teacher, and so every year I fund two art scholarships uh, in her name. We're, we're still in conversation with each other. I saw her several years ago when I was in Los Angeles, and uh, she's one person who comes to mind. I love that so much. Mine is Mrs. Nancy Sullivan. Mrs. Sullivan, my third grade teacher. And I was, now I know you're not going to believe this, Gerard, but I was like a really shy kid. I never, <laughs> I know, I was like really introverted, never wanted to speak up in class. Well, good like Lord. She Your husband would disagree with that now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, it's Mrs. Sullivan's fault, right? So I was <laughs> But I used to like, I was a kid, I would go eat lunch with the teacher. Like I didn't want, although we have to go back for a second because my mom was packing me tofu before it was cool. Like before anybody knew what tofu really? was, my mom was going to like the co-op in 1982 or something. The the only one you could find out, it was Ann Arbor, Michigan, right? And, um, and so wow. I was always like embarrassed. I wanted the Twinkies and stuff. But anyway, Mrs. Sullivan, I would eat lunch with her and she tolerated my tofu, um, which I don't like today, by the way. Sorry, mom. Um, and I just, you know, she really brought me out of my shell. And I, I, what I remember most about her was she really helped me tap into like my inner writer. And I think that I enjoy writing today in large part because of Mrs. Sullivan. So cheers to her. Maybe maybe one day we'll even get her to listen to the show. And I, I also have to, of course, <laughs> as I always do, a shout out to Charlie Glenn. Because even though I was in my late 20s when he was teaching me, he is, he is a teacher and um, was very formative. He helped really shape my, my path as an adult. So, and cheers to all of the teachers, right? It has been a year. It has been a Unlike year. Like any other, uh, this teacher appreciation week, which interestingly enough, uh, was kicked off in part because of, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt in the 1950s and her push to make this a celebration, which then became more popular. NEA and others began to support it. And it was only a few presidents, who, in fact, who actually uh, produced resolutions or proclamations to actually support it. And thus far, Obama's had more than any other president. Yeah. Well, we appreciate our teachers every day. Truly. I, I say that every morning when I send my kids off to somebody <laughs> <else> for <laughs> six hours. Um, but um, but it's I think it's always really nice when we can actually take a t take some time out to express that appreciation for them. 
And, you know, teachers, Gerard, um, teachers and K to 12 had been, have been much on the mind, I should say pre-K to 14, have been much on the mind of this new administration in Washington, D.C. And that's what my story of the week is about. Um, Gerard, this is coming to us from cbsnews.com. And the title of the article is Biden says K to 12 education isn't working, calls for free pre-K to grade 14. So, of course, the long and short of it, I think a lot of our listeners probably know about the president's new proposal. We're looking at, um, you know, funding pre-K for all three and four-year-olds, as well as making community colleges free for at least two years. Now, a lot of people who listen to the show are probably going to say, really, we need to spend more money, more, more money <laughs> stuff. And I have a feeling that the guest that we're going to be talking to today, our friend Jonathan Butcher might have stuff to say about this because he's certainly written about federal spending. Um, but I want to, I want to weigh in here and say, you know, I, it's one of my sort of hobbies to think about pre-K. It's something I it's just near and dear to my heart. And of course that didn't happen until I had kids in pre-K and felt so fortunate to have access to such a high quality pre-kindergarten education. Um, but we should also recognize that, you know, the research really supports the idea that when kids have high quality, and it's important to use those words, have access to high quality um, early childhood education, it can make just an enormous difference in their lives. It's, it makes a difference in their ability to read on grade level by the right time, which makes it huge difference in life outcomes. And we haven't quite figured out yet in this country, um, a lot of other countries have, how to really get kids into pre-K. So, you know, currently there's only um, a portion of this country um, where families have access to high quality educative daycare or even what some will refer to as universal pre-kindergarten, which is when we talk about that, we're mainly talking about pre-kindergarten programs that are sort of attached to K-12 programs in districts. And those, specifically those public programs um, where they have gotten off the ground have struggled in a lot of places, meaning it's been hard in districts. I'll use right here in Boston as an example. You know, it's been hard to find all the seats they need for three-year-olds and it goes to a problem of funding. It goes to a problem of not having enough high quality teachers to teach. It goes to the availability of seats and infrastructure and all of these things. So the Biden plan is designed to begin to chip away at this problem using federal funds. Um, one of the things that I'm really curious, Gerard, to think more about is you know, I think that we really need to be leveraging what we have in the existing system and making it accessible and affordable for families, which means leveraging private providers, putting mm -hmm. the power in the hands of families instead of locking them into, well, you're in this, you know, just like we do in K to 12, you're in this assigned school. And so that now you have to go to this assigned pre-K. This is a, this is a huge opportunity <laughs> to start thinking about portability and letting families take federal and state dollars to the institutions that, that are going to fit their kids needs. So I think we're going to be talking a lot more about this proposal and seeing how it comes to fruition um, in the coming weeks. And I know you probably have a lot of thoughts about the community college portion, about the higher ed portion of this proposal, um, you know, proposing to make two years of community college free and accessible to adults. And this on the heels of a lot of research that's saying that, um, you know, high school diploma isn't what we uh, once thought it was. Um, and especially in the pandemic, those who don't have college degrees have suffered disproportionately in terms of job loss, et cetera. Um, so there's a lot 
to think about here, but I think that um, we should also emphasize when we're talking about higher education, alternative pathways and in, in, in ensuring, um, and I'll give a shout out to my team at Excel and Ed that does such great work on this, ensuring that um, the kind of education that folks are receiving is really aligned to the kinds of jobs that are available in the market. So um, there's so much to unpack. It's, it's probably a whole nother show, but I would love to get your take, Gerard, on this new, on yet an enormous, another enormous federal funding proposal. Before I moved my family to Virginia, you know, we lived in Georgia and Georgia is actually home to a free state funded pre-K program for four year olds. And it's voluntary. uh, It's not compulsory. And so that's one thing we have to mention, because some friends of mine on the right will say, well, I don't support it because we're creating basically a nanny gate. And I said, no, it's voluntary. No one's telling you you have to go. So there's some examples that we can look at. Uh, In terms of thinkers on this subject, one person that I turn to is Catherine Stevens. Uh, She is a scholar uh, at AEI, and she's written about this for a number of years. And so uh, she's got some nuanced approaches to what works and maybe what should not work. But I've had a chance to attend some of her gatherings with scholars uh, pre-K providers, funders, and others. And so I'd say take a look at uh, at her research. On face value, I'm a supporter of any program that's going to open up the door of, of opportunity to young people as young as possible. But I do think that there is a cultural dynamic in here we may either overlook or just fail to acknowledge. So much of our support for pre-K right now, I think for some, is simply an admission that we've given up on middle school and high school children moving ahead. That we're just basically turning our backs and saying, listen, we've lost that generation, but let's start younger. What's so interesting is the people we're turning our backs on right now were in fact some of those kids in pre-K programs and Head Start and kindergarten where we said it would produce you know, Nirvana and it did not for a host of reasons. So I like pre-K, but I also, you know, am looking at some of the uh, cultural dynamics. As it relates to community college, you know, I'm biased. I'm a graduate of El Camino Community College in Los Angeles. Uh, Made me the person I am today in, in terms of setting a platform for me to move. When I went to El Camino College, it was drum roll, $50 a semester. Wow. Yeah. And so I didn't realize that people were paying. I didn't realize you were that old, Gerard. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You get me back for the husband comment. I, I know. <laughs> but I didn't realize that people were paying hundreds of dollars or thousands a semester to go to community college until I moved to Washington, D.C. So the free concept, OK, fine, you'll make it free. But to do what? Um, I, I'm, I'm OK if it's free. But more importantly, I'm saying free to do what? Uh, I do think that we need to understand that a number of people who go to, to a community college, uh, they do so with no intention whatsoever of earning an associate's degree. Uh, I did when I went. But people will say this program is going to fail because look at how many people leave without an associate's degree. Well, how many people leave? with a certificate or, or a license. Some people simply go to take classes. Uh, so I think it's worth having. It's also worth noting that a study, and I can't remember the group, identified that over 60% of the African-Americans and Hispanics who have a PhD today uh, got their start at a community college. 
lastly, any conversation during a new president's first term really is a wish list. Uh, saying you want to spend a lot of money on things are great. That happens with Democrats and Republicans. Uh, as you and I both know, the rubber is going to meet the road at the state and local level. So I will follow this with great interest. But um, as usual, we've got rhetoric and we've got reality. You're here. Well said. Well, speaking of rhetoric and reality, my story is from South Carolina, uh, a state that's received a lot of attention in the past few weeks uh, for school choice, but also for Senator Tim Scott's uh, response to President Biden's uh, speech. This one is about a subject that's pretty familiar to me, and it's about state takeovers of failing school districts. And this is from the uh, state, uh, the state newspaper, April 29th by Zach Kosky. This is really interesting. The State Department of Education is actually supporting legislation that's already passed the House, likely will pass the Senate and find its uh, way to the governor's desk to be signed into law, where the superintendent will not only have the authority to take over a chronically failing school. She's done so in Avondale and Florence Four and in Williamsburg. But this law will also give her the opportunity to dissolve the school board. And in doing so, uh, basically, this legislation will allow the state, state superintendent, of course, with consent from the State Board of Education, to declare a state of emergency and to basically say that the school system will lose a school board. Uh, in its place, they will put in to get, you know, uh, local leaders or really leaders who are going to run the district and for about six years kind of watch what will happen uh with you know achievement in other areas. This is controversial naturally because when you look at the schools in South Carolina that are on the list for a takeover, they tend to be predominantly students of color. Uh, they tend to be school systems where there's high poverty and they tend to be school systems that are outside, somewhere inside what we'd call big cities, but also in rural areas. There are those who are concerned about uh, dissolving a board and what it means for the Voting Rights Act. Uh, there is definitely some concern there. There's also others of what does this mean for representative democracy? As we know, uh, state takeovers of failing schools or even systems is not new. We know that Jersey City back in 1989 became the first urban school district in a while to have the state come in because it was, quote unquote, academically bankrupt. And there have been over 50 such takeovers of schools and big systems, including New York, including Chicago and now South Carolina. Uh, My unfinished dissertation at the University of Virginia, in fact, was on state takeovers. And one of the reasons you never had a takeover of big southern school systems, in part, was because of the Voting Rights Act, which also had the Civil Rights Act and the whole idea of preclearance that you needed from the federal government. There was a Supreme Court case which, um, let's say, uh, diluted uh, the preclearance aspect of it. But we'll see how this will play out. I have two takes on this issue. Number one, there are times when a state chief or a board of education or state responsible leaders have to step in and take over or intervene into a system that is chronically underperformed, but more importantly, put those children on a pathway to failure and through some of my research on a pathway to prison. At the same time, we have to learn from the lessons of a Jersey City of a Newark, and even in Kentucky and West Virginia, where they have rural counties taken over. 
there's some things that go right and wrong. So I think South Carolina should take a look and see uh, what they're going to get involved in because there could be some big wins, but there also could be some major losses. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more, Gerard. And this is this in, this issue is so interesting. And I, I love that you point out that you know this goes back a long time, but I think we've seen fewer and fewer of these in the last couple of years with, with good reason, some of which you pointed out, right? Some of these tensions that you pointed out. I think we should also recognize that it's, you know, the idea that states, um, states are really going to be the ones to turn things around sometimes. It, Pioneer Institute needs a big shout out here because I know our own Jamie Gass, producer of this show, at some point have worked for um, the when when ah, BU that's so, correct. right there was a the state took over some they put some schools here in Massachusetts into receivership in Chelsea Massachusetts mm-hmm. and Boston University came in and said well you know we have all of these professors of education and others and we have ideas and theories about what could turn the school district around and there's evidence that um that you know what BU did actually worked and I thought mm-hmm. it was a really savvy partnership mm-hmm. on the start of the date now I think that it's fair to say that uh since that partnership ended there's been some regression um it's uh there are various reasons why the Chelsea public schools um you know have struggled over the years but there are ways and ways to do things And um, I think that continuing to watch this issue and I wish that we did a better job of highlighting both the successes and the failures so mm-hmm. that we could learn. So it's, it's, it's really a shame that you didn't finish that dissertation because I betcha, you know, that would have solved everybody's problems. You could have told us all what to do. <laughs> well, I'm not as smart as you. I couldn't finish. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not about being smart. It's about, I don't know, persistence maybe, right? Just slogging through. But I think you're pretty persistent. So I don't know, George, you had better things to do. Um, All right. Coming up after this, we are going to be talking to Jonathan Butcher, uh, speaking of South Carolina, of South Carolina, native South Carolinian, I do believe. And um, he's going to talk to us about everything from, I don't know, Gerard, uh, learning pods to what's going on in South Carolina education politics besides state takeovers today. So coming up right after this. Learning Curve listeners, welcome back. We are here with Jonathan Butcher. He is the Will Skillman Fellow in Education at the Heritage Foundation. Jonathan has researched and testified in education policy and school choice programs around the U.S. In 2019, he co-edited and wrote chapters in the book, The Not-So-Great Society, which provides conservative solutions to the problems created by the ever-expanding federal footprint in preschool, K-12, and higher education. Earlier this year, South Carolina Governor Henry McMaster nominated Jonathan to serve on the board for the South Carolina Public Charter School District, a statewide charter school authorizer. In 2018, the Federal Commission on School Safety cited his comments in the commission's final report. He has appeared on local and national TV outlets, including C-SPAN, Fox News, and HBO's Vice News Tonight, and he's been a guest on many radio programs. His commentary has appeared nationally in places such as the Wall Street Journal, Education Week, National Review Online, Newsweek.com, and Forbes.com, along with newspapers around the country. Jonathan Butcher, welcome to The Learning Curve. Thank you. Great to be with you. Yeah, we're really happy to have you here. So, Jonathan, let's let's 
dive right in to top talking about something that we we probably never would have talked about or at least named this way had it not been for the pandemic we've been enduring but um really uh, somewhat close to the onset of of mass school closures and kids learning from home you dove right in and did some great work on the concept of learning pods and um and your work focused on you know how parents could benefit from learning pods as well as what needed to be done to protect learning pods from um, state regulations that could threaten parent autonomy with this innovation. Could you, for our listeners who don't know, um, talk a little bit about what a pod is? I mean, sometimes I think we um, there, there are various definitions, <laughs> but their background, maybe they preceded the pandemic, and then how you view them as part of this growing drive for more parent-driven educational opportunity. Sure. So the first thing to know is that lawmakers in Texas are considering a proposal very similar to the research that I performed earlier this year. So I know that lawmakers are watching carefully what's going on with this issue of pods and what state agencies are doing to limit what parents can do when their children are home for full-time virtual learning during the pandemic. So this is definitely something that's been on the minds of parents around the country as well as state lawmakers. So learning pods are a, they are a great civil society example of how Americans responded to the onset of COVID-19. As schools closed, to in-person learning and everybody was sent home and had to learn online, many parents took issues into their own hands and said, all right, we're going to get together with our neighbors, with our child's friends in their school or in their neighborhood or community, and we're gonna be in small groups and we'll teach them at home. We'll either hire a teacher or the parent would supervise what children were doing either online or they would choose their own curriculum. It was a very natural way, right? An organic way for families to solve what was a a very difficult situation, right? I mean, parents are trying to figure out how to get back to work. Schools were closed for an indeterminate period for a while. So I think this idea that uh, parents needed districts to figure out the problem, uh, you know, figure out the solution of the problem was simply a myth. And uh, and families responded really in states around the country with one report finding that there could be as many as three million children in pods now. So very exciting to see parents take matters into their own hands. So, Jonathan, you say um, nearly three million children in pods now. Of course, in some places across the country, schools are either still closed or hybrid or like, for example, here in the Northeast, we are just reopening. Not the case in all states. But I'm curious as to your thoughts and whether or not we have, I think we have good data on, you know, what parents think about pods and whether or not they like pods. Um, But do you think that this is a phenomenon that's really going to persist once, um, once we are all, or most of us are vaccinated or at least feel safe being back in schools again? Well, I think when we recognize that approximately one third of children, according to recent reports, are still doing online school full-time or some sort of hybrid scenario, especially in large cities like L.A., 
Um, and uh, high school students in many large cities around the country, uh, I think just that the option is out there. I think just that parents realize that this is something that they can do to help their children right now without having to wait for some public official somewhere to tell them what's allowed or what's not allowed um, should give us hope for any number of situations going forward, right? I mean, teacher unions today, especially under this new administration, have seen pretty significant uh, support, right? Significant uh, favorable um, favorable uh, media attention, let's say that, uh, as, uh, as the new administration has come in. And so as they look to do what they do, which is go on strike and shut schools down, this, I think, is uh, these learning pods are a way that parents can respond right away without having to wait for the unions to decide that their members can go back to work. So, you know, I think that just just the very, the very idea that these options are there, just like homeschooling, charter schools, education savings accounts, private school scholarships, all of these things, right, are viable options for families. Uh, but with learning pods, they don't need somebody else's permission. Parents can take, uh, like we were saying before, take matters into their own hands. Um, and I think that's really important for parents to know that they can do it themselves. Absolutely. Now, of course, for parents to do that, to do it themselves and, um, you know, specifically parents who perhaps um, maybe they want to hire a teacher to come into the home because they're working full time or maybe they're just right. It's, it could take one could imagine resources, um, even if you are partnered with neighbors or others in the community. So with that in mind, are there other things that states could do to um, make learning pods more accessible to parents and families? Well, sure. And I'll give you two things. I mean, I think for one, in the research that I did for the State Policy Network last fall, one of the things that I talked about was that in many states over the summer and into the fall, state agencies like the Department of of Health or uh, Child Protective Services were issuing regulations limiting the size of pods, limiting the activities that parents could perform, you know, with their children and everything from snacks to keeping a, you know, cleanliness and, and all sorts of different things that normally would be applied to daycare centers, not somebody's home, uh, were being laid and layered on top of families who were decided to use learning pods. And so the, the Texas proposal that I mentioned earlier is a response to that. And I think it's a response that um, state lawmakers said, all right, we're going to not force families to suddenly become at-home daycare providers while they solve this problem of forced at-home learning for their children. So that's the first thing, right? The first thing that lawmakers could do is uh, give parents the flexibility they need to educate their children while they are at home and, and if schools are closed. And it really shouldn't matter if schools are open or not, right? This should be an option for families uh, that have decided this is the best way for their children to learn right now. So that, that would be one, right? It would be to, to uh, limit and, and back off the, the regulatory burden that would be forced onto families. Second thing are the public and private learning options that have been spreading around the country for the past 30 years. Um, I think this year has been a remarkable year for parent choice in education. Um, We have seen new programs in places like West Virginia and Kentucky, which are states that have had a very strong union presence for many, many years, um, as well as states like Indiana that already have uh, choice options. So I think that state lawmakers should be looking for ways to see how to give parents the ability to choose how and where their children learn. Um, Arizona's 
education savings accounts along with Florida's Gardner scholarships are uh, very exciting options uh, that have been replicated in in West Virginia um, and even in in Kentucky um, uh, today. So I think with these accounts, when you take a portion of a child's funds from the state funding formula and you put it in a private bank account that parents can use to buy education, learning services and products for their children, this is a whole new era Right of deciding how children can be successful in school. Uh, parents in those states uh, um, that I was just listing there, as well as Mississippi, Tennessee, as well as the state scholarship programs in places like Iowa and Pennsylvania, you know, they allow parents to find the best option that meets their child's unique needs. With the accounts, they can not only find a school. They can also pay for a variety of services, personal tutors, educational therapists, uh, buy textbooks, uh, even pay for part-time virtual learning if they choose. So these are all things that could be used in the pod scenario is what I'm getting at, right? These accounts would allow families, right, to customize a child's experience with a learning pod. So I think the model is out there, right? The examples are out there in states, and I think more state lawmakers should be looking at these proposals. Yeah, thank you so much for highlighting those, Gerard, and I've been talking a lot about, really, this has been um, the year of choice in many ways, and I think a lot of us who think about these things saw it coming <laughs> the minute schools really refused to um, to even try to accommodate parents and follow the science. Um, Jonathan, before I let Gerard jump in here, because I'm sure he's itching, as usual, I, I wanted to ask you really specifically, since you're in South Carolina, about South Carolina's own attempt, first at a GEARS-funded um, education savings account. Some would call it a voucher, but it did have some components um, that would allow parents to to spend those monies on other things. Um, and and where that's at. So we know that there that legally it it didn't pass muster. Um, what's going on in South Carolina about expanding educational opportunity to parents um, in this way? Sure. And this was a great move, I think, by state lawmakers last year when uh, Washington sent you know, some $13 billion to uh, schools uh, around the country. And some of that money was, like you said, a part of the gear portion, which was a uh, went through the governor's office in states. Uh, Governor McMaster in South Carolina decided that some of that some of those resources could be used to create some flexible learning options for children in need in South Carolina. Um, the uh, opponents to to choice do what they do and um, and try to block it. And they used Blaine amendments, uh, which is provisions in state constitutions that date back more than 100 years that are discriminatory uh, without question. Uh, they were created to discriminate um, against students, and uh, they have limited the options for um, uh, students in many states because it has constrained what state lawmakers can offer to children who are assigned to failing schools, for example. Uh, This leads us to Montana, oddly enough, on the other side of the country, because in Montana, um, there, there was a uh, lawsuit dealing with the Blaine Amendment in that state that made it all the way to the Supreme Court, as those who follow private school choice will know and and follow the school choice movement. And with that decision that ruled in favor of of families, uh, that, I think, opened up uh, the possibility that states such as South Carolina, where a private school opportunity was blocked, that local um, advocates and parents 
could work to do the same thing here, which is being done and led, by the way, by the great team at the Palmetto Promise Institute. Uh, I have such respect for um, Ellen Weaver and Oren uh, there. And so they have worked with a group of private schools in the state to uh, push back. They're filing a civil rights lawsuit um, uh, trying to get rid of the Blaine Amendment in South Carolina's state constitution. So this could be you know, a huge move, right? This could be something that could then open up the possibility that was struck down uh, last year. So, you know, I, I think that state lawmakers such as Governor McMaster really should be applauded for um, having choice on the mind, right? When the op opportunity and possibility came up last year. And um, and I think that the Palmetto Promise team and uh, the schools that they're working with are uh, taking some important steps right now. So all eyes should be uh, watching what's going on with that, um, this particular suit. But Jonathan, you've done such a great job of providing us a glimpse into what's taking place at the state level. Uh, let's move some of the conversation to D.C. So in spring 2020, Cato, Heritage, Pioneer Institute and others co-authored a policy brief titled Right-Sizing uh, Federal Education, Principles for Reform and Practical Steps to Move in the Right Direction. Could you summarize the highlights of the policy brief and what steps you advise are necessary in order to return or better yet restore uh, K-12 authority to state localities and parents? Well, certainly. And, and let me we can make it very, very relevant, because as many people know, just last week, uh, President Biden talked about a plan that would cost I mean, we're talking nearly two trillion in new spending spread across uh, childcare, paid family leave, uh, K-12 schools. I mean, some nearly 750 billion of that new spending would be on education. So we're, you know, this was introduced as though the conversation was over and no one is actually thinking about the appropriate role for Washington in our K-12 schools. And I think it's important for those who um, know, right, what the effects have been of the increased federal presence on local schools to stand up and say, you know, wait a minute, right? We haven't always had a U.S. Department of Education and it was okay. Um, and I think that uh, uh, the report that we worked on with our friends at Pioneer and Cato helped to outline what some of those effects have been and what we think the proper role of Washington should be. So, you know, just a quick, you know, a quick taste of, of that. I mean, I think for one, we need to be realistic and say that Title I in the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, along with most of uh, federal law has not had the positive effects on children um, that were intended, especially children from low-income families today. And so we should be backing off these huge investments or uh, this huge spending of uh, using federal taxpayer money. Um, programs like Head Start, I mean, they are funded to the tune of nearly $10 billion a year, $8 billion a year. And uh, the uh, longitudinal peer-reviewed studies of programs such as that, uh, Head Start, of course, is the, um, it's a preschool program for children from low-income families. The research on that program shows that children uh, are not on par with their peers once they get into elementary school, and they actually lose any positive effects that they may have had by the time they hit third grade, 
right? So that's the first thing. We talk um, about cutting the strings is what we call it on K-12 funding. Uh, we do talk about um, getting rid of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act mandates on um, state standards, for one. Uh, we talk about um, what it means for advancing uh, private, public and private school choice among the states. Um, there is, I think, a reasonable conversation, right, that can be had about children on native lands, uh, children in Washington, D.C., children in military families who are under the purview of the federal government and having a conversation about how Washington can restructure what they have in place right now to provide um, choice choices to those children. Um, but I think what Washington has done certainly most recently is look at how much money they can possibly spend on schools. And I think for those that have looked at the research that shows that, um, money does not, uh, directly correlate with improved student outcomes, uh, need to be speaking up and saying that this is not what we need from Washington. So to take another step with your policy brief, you also identified a a GAO study which said that even though the federal government will spend, you know, less than 10 percent on K-12 financing, you know, the regulations caused by it. You know, we're looking at 40 percent of a state education agency's burden is coming from that. Uh, And I've seen some of that firsthand. How do you anticipate states and school districts are going to deal with the enormous amount of federal money they receive from COVID-19. You know, what kind of, you know, layers of bureaucracy will be created from it and how will they be held accountable for spending it? They will likely hire more administrators. I think that that is uh, what they have done. And when I say they, I mean <clears throat> districts around the country. Um, I think that the the ratio of um, non-teaching staff to teaching staff is nearly one-to-one around the country. And so I think that uh, because the unions have uh, a, um, you know, they have an ear with the Biden administration, to put it mildly, uh, I think that this additional money will have schools hiring more staff, which could potentially mean likely more union members in the future. Um, and so I think that this plays into uh, uh, this special interest group's hands. Uh, I think, you know, when you look at the hiring of administrators over time, over the last 50 years, it is, uh, you know, it's just mind boggling uh, how much of the workforce in education has, uh, much of the increase has been with non-teaching staff. Um, I, I don't think it's cynical to think that this is what um, teacher unions were looking for. I mean, I think that, you know, they know that their resources come from the salaries of their members. And so, um, uh, you know, this this has, I would I would suggest, not just fiscal implications for us, but I, I think it has very deep cultural and um, uh, and societal implications as well, given what unions have stood for, especially over the past year. Interesting points. As I was listening to you, I was thinking of uh, Ben Scafferty's staffing surge report. Um, and when I'm hearing you say possible fire administrators, you're on to something. I need to do a deeper dive in that. Well, here's my last question. And again, it's focused on the federal policy. You mentioned that the Biden administration, of course, spent or calling for trillions of dollars to be spent across the board. He's also talking about spending more money on early childhood education and care. Um, how should policymakers think about this in terms of what to do, what not to do, and what's a smart way of trying to 
implement it, if at all? So that's a good question. I mean, I think once again, it uh, should be an, a problem solved as locally as possible. Um, I think it should be something where parents have as much flexibility to make decisions about what they need to do to uh, make their own employment situation work out, their own work um, uh, meet their meet, meet their needs. Um, I don't think that it's something that Washington has successfully done through Head Start. I think research has demonstrated that. Um, I think that uh, uh, we should be having a conversation about what it means for uh, families to be able to spend time with their children, especially at the younger ages. And um, I think we we need to be empathetic, right, for families that need to have um, two working parents, right? Some families don't, but some families do, right? I mean, it's, it's not fair to expect that every family is going to have the same situation um, when it comes to whether parents need to work, whether it's a single parent in the home. Um, and so I, I don't think that, uh, uh, I, I think that it's important for us to say that when we have uh, families in need, there are federal programs that um, were built to uh, to serve them, right, and to provide resources. But any sense of the original purpose of those programs, let's take the National School Lunch Program to start with, right, for one, okay, because that's not just a school lunch program. Federal meals are also breakfast, right? It's breakfast, lunch, it's dinner, right? So programs like that, they've abandoned any sense of being designed just for or operating just for children from special needs uh, uh, situations. Okay, so federal meals for one have expanded to provide for middle class and upper income uh, children as well through the community eligibility provision uh, to name one. Right. So I think the same kind of applies for this issue of of um, of care for um, uh, uh, daycare situations or, or early childhood care. Right. We need to focus at um, any assistance that's provided from Washington or states especially on families who come with low-income situations. Um, I think we need to give parents the flexibility they need to make decisions. And um, uh, I think that uh, this is not something that Washington should be solving for every family. Well, giving parents flexibility is always something that we're for here on The Learning Curve. Jonathan Butcher, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. We've covered a lot of ground in in a short amount of time, and I think that says a lot about the depth and breadth of your work. So we appreciate you coming on and, and hope to read you and talk to you again sometime soon. Thank you. Take care. As always, listeners, we're going to close it out with a tweet of the week. This one from our friend Nina Reese at Nina Charters on Twitter. And she is talking about how Iowa's new charter law will open the door to innovation, equity, and choice. So this is pretty exciting, I think, Gerard, because, you know, we've, I mentioned when we were talking to Jonathan, it's sort of been the year of choice, but a lot of us are thinking about private school choice. But we did have some progress this legislative session in getting um, better charter laws passed and charter schools Mm -hmm. expanded in some places. And Iowa is one of these places. So in the coming days, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, it's expected that she's going to sign a bill that's going to allow a private founding group 
So read not the local school board <laughs> to to open a new charter school and they are going to be they're going to answer directly to the state board of education as an authorizer. So I think that this is really exciting because like come on people we all know. I mean it's the the, the evidence is pretty darned clear that um when local school boards are charter school authorizers charters have a harder time uh being successful. They they lose a lot of their autonomies and um and it's well, you know when we have diverse authorizers that are held to high standards. Um, I think that, that it's better for kids. It's better for families. It's better for charters. So this is exciting news from Iowa for our tweet of the week. And that's it for today, but we're looking forward to next week when we're going to be speaking with Professor Melvin Yurofsky, who is the biographer of Justice Louis Brandeis. So Gerard, until then, appreciate your teachers and take care. I will do. Take care. Take care.